Listen, somebody is waiting for you. Somebody's waiting for you. I mean, that's the truth. It's actual. Somebody's waiting for you. It's a real person. This isn't imaginary. This isn't theoretical. There is a real person waiting for you. They are somewhere tonight. Somewhere. Across the street. Around the world. There is a real person somewhere waiting for you. And this is what I know about them. They do not know Jesus. And this is something I know about most of you. You do know Jesus in this church. Someone waiting for you without Jesus. And you in this church family with the extraordinary blessing of being here in this place at this time are going to be led by the Holy Spirit in the days and the months and the years ahead. You're going to be moved to that place where you're going to meet that person and their eternity is going to be changed because of the determination you make in moments like this, I'm going to find that person. How are we going to do it? Looking at someone who did it. Looking at how God makes it happen. Looking how he fulfills the mission that he has given this church. That he has given all his people through the ages. Since he said, go ye therefore and make disciples. And then all through this history we come down to this night. And we have this book And we open it up, we look to its pages, and we see clearly. It's not just about people who lived 2,000 years ago. It's about people who live in and around Hernando, Mississippi, who come to Longview Point Baptist Church, who sat there on a Sunday night, and God spoke to your heart to get off the chair and start looking for that person who's waiting for you. Look in Acts chapter 16, down in that passage of Scripture, beginning at verse 6. Acts chapter 16 and verse 6. Here's a search team. Paul and his companions. God put in on their hearts, someone's waiting for you. So they traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Listen to this. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Concluding, putting this all together and reasoning, understanding, mentally becoming aware spiritually becoming burdened, they immediately 
got ready. Paul had seen the vision. We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace. The next day, we went to Neapolis, and from there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. When Jason mentioned to me that they needed one more speaker, I was flattered, but also realizing that he was desperate. <laughs> I couldn't, uh, couldn't say no to the boy, so I said, I, I will do it. But I've always had a little bit of a trepidation about world mission conferences. It started back several years ago when I was invited to do a world missions conference. That's what they called it at the time, world missions conference, in northwest Alabama. It's a very strange area of Alabama. I think Sullivan is the county seat, and I hope there's no Sullivanites, whatever you are, in here tonight. You won't be um, embarrassed by this, but it was, it was hard going. I, they took me out in the woods to stay with this family. I walked in the house, and they uh, showed me in a room, and the first thing I said is, there's no curtains in this room. <laughs> I mean, there's just all glass windows and lights and everything. And the, the lady said, don't worry about that, son. There's nobody living within five miles of them windows. <laughs> so I made myself at home. We got settled in. They took me on Sunday morning. A deacon from First Baptist Soldier picked me up to take me out to speak in a church out in the country. So I went out there with him. We drove and drove and drove, and there's nothing but pine trees and pine trees and more pine trees. And finally, a, a little white church, big cemetery next door, little white church, maybe a dozen cars out in front of it. I got out of the car and went to the front of the church, and there was a man standing on the step smoking. And I talked to him for a while as he smoked away, and other people gathered and came and went. And he, finally, he, he looked at his watch, and he said, we better get this thing started. And I said, well, where's the pastor? And he said, I'm the pastor. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I, I've never been in such a strange situation in my life. I was giving testimony. I, I was preaching about the call on our lives and God calling us out to serve as his ambassadors around the world. And I mean, those people could have cared less. And visually and bodily made, that, made me very aware of that. I mean, they were talking. These adults, this was not a youth group. They were talking. They were passing babies around. And it was just the weirdest thing I've ever been in. Now, after it was over, they had dinner on the grounds, and I, I went out there. The one thing they did exceptionally well was fried chicken. <laughs> and I sat down, had some fried chicken, and I said... You know, tell me something a little bit about your church. I didn't let on yet that it was weird, but I said, well, what, what about this church? And the guy said, you know, uh, actually, we come out here about once a month, and we come out and take care of the cemetery. And suddenly it dawned on me, this was a cemetery society. It really wasn't a church. It was people who came out to take care of the graves of their parents and their grandparents about once a month, and somehow they engineered to have a speaker that Sunday morning, and I was the speaker. When we were leaving, 
the deacon who had driven me out there from First Baptist Soldier, he looked at me and he said, was there something different about that church? And I said, there was. And I told him what it was is that it was a church that was concerned with the dead. A church that was concerned with the dead. They didn't care about anybody who was still living. And that night, when it came time to go back out into those Alabama woods, I was so depressed. I thought, what in the world am I going to be able to say? I'm just flat out discouraged about the state (laughs) of the church in this corner of the world. Let me just tell you what happened. I went out that night. I was driven out in the woods, farther and farther back in the woods, and came to a church that was lit up. The parking lot must have had 50 cars and trucks and four-wheelers and everything else that you could get to church on all across the parking lot. I came in what they still called their, not training union, but what do you call it before training union? BTU, yeah. They still had BTU. This isn't that many years ago. And it was packed out. People were standing along the walls. And there was a young woman. She was leading it. And she would say, does someone have a testimony? And some old fellow in Bill Bowles, he'd stand up and he'd say, I want to tell you what the Lord has done for my wife and me. We've been married for 62 years. And he would just go on praising the Lord. And then this young fellow would stand up on the other side of the church. And he'd start giving a testimony about what the Lord had done for him. And across that church... It was one testimony. I'd never seen anything like it out in the middle of nowhere just to run into a group of people so different than the people I had met that morning in the same part of the country. Both churches had the word Baptist on the front of them. But in one, the Holy Spirit was let loose in a way you rarely see where people were free to just stand up and tell one another what God was doing. When it came my time to preach, I preached a message I think I preached here a couple of years ago from Acts chapter 26 where, where Paul ends up before King Agrippa and he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And I said to the folks at that night, way out there in the pine trees, will you be obedient tonight to the heavenly vision? I've never seen anything like this. Have you ever seen a whole congregation stand up and rush the pulpit I had to get out of the way. (laughs) Men and women and young people, boys and girls, were on their face before the Lord, committing to Him that little place where you wouldn't think they could ever make a whit of difference in the world, but they believed they could. That God could use people like them on His mission. What's the difference And all our churches all around, it's not the name on that church. It's what's going on in the heart of the people. Whatever the name. Wherever it's located. It's when God gets hold of us. And convinces us that we are part of this together. That a mission statement for a church is not just for the wall or for the bulletin. It's for my heart. That I own it personally. Extending the kingdom of God across the street and around the world is not something that the staff came up with to decorate the bulletin. 
It's the call on our lives. Everyone in this room, everyone in this room, if you're not old enough to understand what I'm saying to you yet, one day you will be, and it will be yours to take that gospel across the street and around the world because someone is waiting for you. Waiting like Lydia. The passage continues as the Holy Spirit has been working in this little band of believers to guide and direct their path. Someone was waiting. The Holy Spirit said, you can't go there. But it looks good. It's a big town up there. Don't go there. Well, we'll go this way. Don't go that way. But Lord God, there's many people there that need to hear. Don't go that way. Someone is waiting for you. One somebody. I want you to go find her. And so they find Lydia. Chapter 16. She's down at the riverside. I've been reading and thinking about these people so much this week, I can see them. I can see her sitting there. She is fancy. She is dressed like nobody else. She is a businesswoman of the first century. She is a dealer in the color purple. She's from a place called Thyatira, 400 miles away. The irony of it is that Paul had tried to go to Thyatira when he turned south. The Holy Spirit would let him go. If he had gone to her hometown, she wouldn't have been there. The Holy Spirit just works and moves and directs. So he finds her 400 miles from home, sitting by a riverside, prosperous, well-dressed, sophisticated. She's in the fashion industry. That color purple, they squeeze it out of snails, drop by drop, till they collect it enough to dye the bolts of cloth that was used for royalty. I just was tickled with the young people and the adults that were baptized tonight who came out in those purple robes. That cost well over $250,000 to outfit those people with that little bit of purple dye that was taken from that snail, if you had the real thing. But she is empty. Something was missing. She had wealth and she had prestige and she had position. But here this Gentile woman from Asia, she comes down by the riverside and meets some Jewish women who are praying. And she's drawn to them. Out of a pagan society, she, she was sick and tired of what that pagan society looked like and what it offered. And she wanted something deeper and real She was sick and tired of the morals of that declining civilization. And she longed for something that was clean and pure. And she was finding it in association with a little prayer meeting on the side of a river. And the scripture says that Paul and his little band come down to that river because they were searching. They were looking for that one somebody. And there she was. The scripture says 
that Paul began speaking to her, talking to her, not arguing, not even strongly persuading those words aren't used. He just talked to this group of women, talking, talking about Jesus, asking them questions. What are you studying? What, what happens when you pray? Who are you praying to? What happens in answer to your prayers? Just starting a conversation. And underline this in your Bible in chapter 16, right there in that Lydia conversation, because it says the Lord opened her heart. That's how it happens. That's how it is that God can use somebody like you or somebody like me. I don't have the gift of evangelism, but I can talk. And I can talk about Jesus. And then it's up to the Lord. And guess what? He's far more concerned about Lydia. He went a lot of trouble get Paul to Lydia. He's very much more considered, uh, concerned about her than I ever was or could be or Paul ever was or could be. So the Lord is in it. His spirit guides so that we can find that somebody somewhere. And then we talk. Can you talk? Can you talk about Jesus? Can you talk about some things he's done for you? Somebody talked to my mom. We were raised in a cult, Christian science. We didn't know the Lord Jesus. We look religious. We look clean. Can I tell you, religious people need Jesus? Nobody found me then. Nobody was looking for me then. But somebody, after March and I went to the mission field, went looking for my mom and started talking to her. She was a teacher's aide. And another teacher's aide started talking to her about Jesus. And one day invited her to their church. My mom went. Several times. And then one Sunday morning, the woman leaned over during the invitation and she said to my mom, Janet, don't you think it's time you gave your heart to Jesus? And, and my mom didn't even hesitate a moment. She said yes, and she got up and ran down that aisle. All five feet of her. But she was big compared to Lottie. <laughs> I want to tell you, for the next 10 years, my mom was Lottie Moon at her church. Every Christmas, she dressed up as Lottie Moon, that outfit out there, fixed her hair back, and she stood before congregations, and she called them to step out and support Southern Baptist missionaries around the world. You know why? Because God was concerned about my mom, and he put it on somebody's heart to have a talk with her and tell her about Jesus. You can talk. You can talk tomorrow at school. The federal government, the state government, the county government, the school board cannot stop a kid talking to another kid about Jesus. Talk. Tell them. And don't be put off because they look religious or you think they go to some other church. Talk to them about Jesus. Across the street, there's somebody who's waiting for you. Across the street. Down the street, across town, talk to him. Lydia comes to the Lord. The Lord opens her heart and she's filled with amazement. She tells her whole household, they're all baptized. 
and she invites some missionaries to come stay with them. She must have been pretty well off because she invites four missionaries to stay with her, and she's going to feed them. And when you feed four missionaries, you stand back and watch with amazement. <laughs> they decide to go back to the riverside the next day, and as they're going, a little weird, strange slave girl. You'll find her story told in the same 16th chapter. Verse 16, once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. What a contrast between this sophisticated businesswoman of the first century and this slave tormented. Can you see her? I see her. She's filthy. She is in rags. She is blabbering and blathering and she's crying out behind the missionaries and she's making a scene and she's making the whole thing look weird. Behold, these men have come to tell you about the Most High God and point to you the way to salvation. She's screaming it over and over again and just making the whole thing look like a circus. And she continues to do this. She's a slave. She's owned by a group of, of men who use her and abuse her. And she's filled with an unclean spirit Spirit of a, of actually it's a spirit of a python, actually in the Greek, a python. And, and that was a fortune-telling thing that comes from some temple in Delphi. And she's got this double whammy on her life. She's owned as a slave, and she's enslaved by Satan, and she's in bondage, and she's hindering the gospel. And one day, Paul just gets fed up with the whole thing, and he turns around and says, come out of her. The spirit immediately leaves, and she is set free. Somebody with a tormented heart, someone enslaved, someone who is in darkness, someone's held in the kingdom of Satan, is waiting for someone like you to just brush past their life and not be satisfied to see it left that way. Come out of her. You're not going to give up on her. You're going to see to her. You're going to go to battle for her. You're going to fight Satan and sin and death and the devil until that girl gets free. You're going to look at that boy and you're going to say, Satan, you can't have him. You can't have him. He belongs to God, and I'm claiming him for Jesus Christ. There needs to be a church that goes to battle because this is an age of enslavement. There needs to be a people who go looking and willing to reach somebody like that. How, how many of our kids will it take to get bound up with drugs and alcohol and sexual perversion and all the things that are being thrown at our young people before a church stands up and says, That's enough, Satan. God's people are standing up. God's people are going to get in those places where we can make a difference and we can fight this thing in the name of Jesus. That girl was set free. I believe there was a Sunday morning 12 years later when she was sitting in that Philippian church and that letter was read, the Philippian letter, where it says, live holy and pure lives, be blameless in a perverse 
and crooked generation where you shine as lights. And I'm looking at her 12 years later in that church and she's shining. And then the scripture says, holding forth the word of life. When somebody gets free from that kind of imprisonment, that kind of slavery, what a testimony they are for the power of the cross, power of God to liberate, set people free. Somebody's waiting for you, just like that. Somebody's waiting for you. Across the street, around the world, somebody's waiting. Well, it gets them in trouble. They get arrested. Paul and Silas are thrown in prison. They're beaten first. You know that wonderful story. Isn't it wonderful? Wonderful for us to tell it. Awful for them to experience it. Thrown in the bottom of the jail. Put in stocks. It's stinking. It's filthy. It's midnight. Paul looks at Silas. Silas, I've got an idea. Silas says, what? Let's sing. Are you kidding? (laughs) No, let's sing. Come on, sing with me. When we all get to heaven. It took Silas a a while to chime in. But finally, the two of them are singing. And they're singing. And they're singing. And then the jailhouse rocks. It shakes. It shimmies. You all didn't feel it over here, but over in northwest Arkansas, we got an earthquake about two weeks ago. I was standing in the house, and Tommy and Betsy McDonald were visiting with us, and I thought Tommy had brought the four-wheeler up the stairs from downstairs. <laughs> it was just shaking. It shook so in that prison that the jailer woke up. He saw the chains falling down, the doors flying open. And uh, if he had one job at all, it was to keep those guys in prison. He, he blew it. His world was shaken up. He, had, he was ruined. And he pulls out his sword and he's going to fall on it and kill himself. This, this guy was a tough guy. This is a tough heart. Lydia, Lydia, she had that open heart and slave girl had that tormented heart. Have you ever met anybody with just a really tough heart? Just hard to talk to about anything. You can't get a conversation started. Tough. But his conversation got started that night when his world fell apart. Somebody is waiting for you whose world is falling apart. They've been tough. They've been impossible to to talk to. But there's going to come a time in their life, there's going to be a day, there's going to be a night, there's going to be a moment when the world starts to shake. And it falls apart. And at that moment, isn't it amazing how God can put somebody through a series of circumstances they'd never choose, but he puts that person in that place at that time because, listen to this, does this sound familiar? In all things, God is working for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In stocks and a stinking prison, but God's working. God's working. God's not just working for Paul and Silas. He's working for that, for that ornery, cussed, hard-nosed, hard-hearted, Roman soldier turned jailer who was keeping that prison. He falls on his knees before Paul and Silas and says, What must I do 
to be saved. What must I do to be saved? He's not talking about being saved from the Romans, being saved from embarrassment. He's talking about being saved from hell. What must I do to be saved? Somebody's waiting for you. Sometimes they may even phone you. Because through the years you've made a relationship and they know who you are and what you're about, they may phone you at that moment when the world falls apart. They may. Sometimes God works that way. He did that for Pappy King. Pappy King was in construction. He was a mean-spirited, Cajun, hardhead, hard heart. But he developed a terrible cancer. And somebody in his family, his low-life brother-in-law, who used to be a churchgoer, said to him, you better get right with God and call a preacher when he got the diagnosis that he would not live long. So Pappy King went to the phone book down in South Louisiana. He flipped through the pages and he found Violet Baptist Church, Pastor Bob Ford. I got the phone call. This is Pappy King. I need to be saved. And I said, okay, where are you? So I got the salvation ambulance ready and we went roaring down the highway, showed up at his house with a deacon and we shared with him, but it was one of those times where you can hardly get to the point where you said, would you like to receive Christ? It was, come on, come on, I need Jesus now. And Pappy asked the Lord in his heart. For the next weeks, into a month or more, that deacon and I went down to that house once a week on a Monday, and I would preach the same sermon just to Pappy and his wife, Pappy in the bed, his wife sitting there, and I'd preach to them. And uh, we'd sing a, a song. It didn't help Happy a bit, the song, but Scripture did. We got through that whole thing and kept going. One, one night I got the call that Pappy's passing away. Would I come down real quick? So I got there, and by the time I, uh, this disease had progressed, he could no longer talk. He couldn't move his legs. He was completely bedridden. They had a bed in the living room of that little house down in Violet, Louisiana, and Pappy's laid up in the bed. I came in the room. It's like a painting from something of 50 or 60 years ago. People standing. Well, it was 50 or 60 years ago. <laughs> it's older than that. And there, people were standing around the, the room like this, and, and, you know, brothers and sisters, his daughter, his son, his wife, kids, they're all standing around the bed. And uh, Pappy sees me, and he, he used that finger that he had left, and he motioned me over to the bed, pointed at me as I came in the door. So I came up to the bedside, standing by Pappy, and he looks around the room, and he sees his wife, and he points at his wife, and he points at heaven, and he points at me. Points at heaven, points at his wife. What do you want, Pappy? You want me to tell her how to get to heaven? And that's it. I shared the gospel with his wife. She bowed her head. She trusted in Christ at that bedside that evening. Pappy looked up and he searched around the room and he found his daughter. He pointed at his daughter. He pointed to heaven. 
He pointed at me. And I got down on my knees. She was on her knees, and we prayed, and she asked Jesus into her heart. This is absolutely true. Someone was waiting that night, and I got the call. He didn't stop. He looked up. He kept pointing. He found that old brother-in-law, that sorry one. And he pointed to him, and that, that sorry old brother, brother-in-law asked Jesus into his heart. Just around the room, one after another, they fell under the power of the gospel with that finger. That finger. He didn't die that night. I went home. And several days later, I got a phone call. They said, Pappy's using his finger. <laughs> and we're telling people. They said, the postman came yesterday. Mailman came, and Pappy pointed at the mailman, pointed at heaven, and we told him about Jesus. And they, they said, you'll never believe this. Two guys showed up at the door. Jehovah Witness. <laughs> we invited him in. Pappy pointed at him, pointed to heaven, pointed. We told him about how to know Jesus, how to go to heaven. Listen, if a dying man can use his finger to point people to Jesus, you've got two hands, you've got two legs, you've got a functioning brain and body. Get up, church. Cross the street. Around the world. Would you write something in your Bible? Then I'll let you go see fireworks. If you don't write it, you can't go. You have to stay after school. But if you'll write this in the Bible, we'll all go out and celebrate the fact that we can talk. And we can go. And somebody's waiting. And here's what I'd like you to own up to. I'd like you to take the mission statement of this church and personalize it. Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Lord, use me, use me to expand your kingdom Lord, use me to expand your kingdom across the street and around the world. You got it? Instead of just seeing that as something that's separate from you on a piece of paper, you own it. It becomes who you are. Lord, use me to expand your kingdom across the street and around the world because someone is waiting for you. I waited for someone and God sent them. And that's why I'm standing here tonight. You waited. God sent somebody to you. And that's why you're here tonight. 